But let's get to my first guest this morning, Shirley Bond. She is the interim leader of the B.C. Liberal Party, leader of the opposition in the B.C. legislature. I'm pleased to welcome her back. Hi. Hi, Mike. How are you this morning? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on and taking the time. Uh, what are you expecting or what are you hoping to hear from the government in this vaccine plan coming later this morning? Well, I think you've outlined the uh, questions that need to be answered very, uh, very well. We need to, you know, British Columbians want to know where they see themselves in the list. They want to know the uh, the mechanism for that rollout. Where will they be able to get the vaccination? Uh, and I think it's an important day for British Columbians. We've been calling for a plan to be articulated. Uh, we'll obviously take a look at the plan that uh, that will be outlined this morning. Uh, the most important thing is that we take care of the uh, the most vulnerable in the province. Uh, we want to make sure that frontline workers, you know, we're going to be taking a look at whether or not there's, uh, you know, frontline workers like firefighters, teachers, all of those people. British Columbians think those people should be pretty high up the list. And and then how do you get it? Do you go to a pharmacy? Uh, where is it going to happen? So I think you've, you've uh, captured the questions that British Columbians are asking. Uh, it is an important day for British Columbia, and I think uh, uh, it's one of the key steps as we deal with the pandemic. Okay, 10.30 this morning, we'll bring you live coverage of that news conference. Shirley Bond, the interim Liberal leader, is my guest. Let's talk about um, some of the issues that we've been focusing on in, on the show this week, and that includes long-term care facilities, and I know this mm-hmm. is top of mind for you as well. Let's talk about some of, some of the concerns that you have. What about that rapid testing? I mean, we've got the long-term care facilities in the province asking for this technology. We've got a stockpile of these rapid tests. Do you think they should be introduced and used in long-term care homes? Absolutely. And we've been pressing the government along with many other people, families, uh, first and foremost. You know, we should be looking at every single measure that is available to ensure that we're caring for the most vulnerable in our province. And we understand that rapid tests aren't a direct replacement for lab-based PCR tests. We understand that. But when we hear the government suggesting that the reason that we're not considering a systematic approach to long-term care rapid testing and when they talk about it being a lack of resources well in fact there are people willing to work with them care home operators are very anxious to find a way to make this work so our perspective is the government should find a way to do this Uh, i've written directly to the premier about this issue it's that important to me and to our caucus Uh, i've yet to hear a, a response from him families want it care providers want it the seniors advocate wants it, and we certainly do, and I think it's t- long past time the government should have done this. Okay, we'll see if there's any more details on that coming out today. Let me ask you about visits to loved ones in long-term care, and we talked a lot about this on the program, especially this week, and we've taken some absolutely moving and heartbreaking phone calls from listeners on the open line, people who have been separated from their loved ones, watching their loved ones deteriorate uh, mm-hmm. while they're locked down in care homes. Let me, I, just, I really want to play this, this clip for you. This is a caller sure. on the show. This was Wednesday's show, Evelyn in New West. Now, she's going to tell a story here about, about her dad uh, deteriorating in long-term care. They were not able to get access to him. Just listen to what she has to say here. My father is in long-term care, and we were just doing the window visits, and he was deteriorating before our very eyes. He was six three man, down to under 100 pounds. Literally every time we went to see him, he was less than. He got COVID, and we were granted oh. end-of-life visits. He turned around. like He actually beat COVID. They, the care home is allowing us to visit him every single day, and um, he's thriving. 
Wow, that's he amazing. Has, yeah, my my sisters and I, we see him. We have a schedule. Every day he has one of us go in and hug him and kiss him, and he is, like, gaining weight and doing well, and he's 90. Oh, my goodness. That's a perfect example of what we're talking about. So mm-hmm. do you think he was able to beat COVID because he had your support? He had his family yes, with him. he yeah. beat COVID Absolutely. because he saw his daughters, and he was able to hold our hands, and he hadn't since April. Extraordinary story. I mean, here's a family separated from their loved ones. He catches COVID. Mm-hmm. It looks like he's going to die. They get a compassionate visit, and he turns around like he rallies after he's reunited with his family. I guess it's mm-hmm. what I guess why I wanted to play that is because I think it's illustrative of of the the issue here. Do you think there should be more opportunities for family to see their loved ones? We absolutely do. And, and I say that first of all, you know what an unbelievable story, and yeah. thankfully it has a, a happier ending than many families have faced in British Columbia. We hear those stories too, Mike, every day. People who are watching their loved ones die uh, from outside a window or, or on an iPad. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm really moved by is the seniors advocate uh, talked about isolation. And one of the things she said is that, um, and I'll, I'll try to remember it, it's a paraphrase, but basically that people living in care homes are more afraid of dying of loneliness than of COVID-19. And when you think about it, we're a year into this pandemic and loneliness and and being apart from uh, families that care for them has an impact on mental health and obviously in the case of the story you just shared on the ability to fight COVID. But think about how profound that is, that people are, seniors are more afraid of dying of loneliness than of COVID. So of course we need to find ways to to try to connect people together. We understand the importance of of looking at uh, being careful about transmission. Uh, That's why rapid testing is is an important consideration. But you know, Mike, the thing that that really is frustrating, there is a significant lack of consistency across British Columbia when it comes to visitation. We need to get that sorted out. It's a year-long issue. And, uh, you know, whether there are social visits or whether there are essential visits, we need to find a way to make that work. The government needs to provide consistent direction to care home operators across the province. Yeah, I mean, it is really inconsistent. And we've heard lots of stories from people who tried to get an essential caregiver designation Mm -hmm. to visit a loved one in long-term care. They're turned down. Uh, they they're upset. they say, no, you can't see your loved one. Other people in other care homes, they're allowed to go in. So it does seem to be a very inconsistent application of the rules from facility to facility. Let me ask you about this story that just broke here in the, in the last 24 hours, and that's mm-hmm. that the provincial government, it appears, had hired Ernst & Young, uh, the consulting company, uh, to study the pandemic effects on care homes. Uh, they've got a report that they've received. There was no notice to the public the study was being done. They've got a, a report they've mm-hmm. been sitting on, it appears. What do you know about this? Well, I probably know about as much as you do, and that's a, that is a very disturbing situation. When you stop to think about the fact that potentially a report was done, uh, probably near the end of the first wave, or at least, uh, you know, during that period of time, which we assume was done to gather information about how we do a better job in long-term care, and, and to think that there is potentially a report that provides advice to government uh, that the public is unaware of, uh, you know, for me, that that is incredibly, and frankly, I, was, I, I could hardly believe when I heard that. So, you know, now, because there's been pressure about that report, apparently the government is willing to uh, release it on, on Monday. Well, right. the fact of the matter is we want to see the whole report. We want to know what the, the advice was, and we certainly want to know if there was advice that could have improved circumstances in long-term care. 
was it listened to? Did the government do anything about that? So uh, really disappointing to hear that uh, that report uh, was either uh, held or kept secret. We don't know why. Um, Important to sort that out. And if there is nothing controversial or difficult in the report, obviously the government should have released it. So let's find out. Let's be transparent with British Columbians and let's make sure that report is released. Yeah, okay, so the government now is saying, well, they'll release it on Monday, but I wonder if this report would have even have seen the light of day mm-hmm. if, the, if the media had not uh, snooped it out, that this thing had, had actually been commissioned and had been conducted. This report's been apparently been sitting on, on someone's desk in government for months. Well, I think that's the concern. And, and you know, when, when it takes a significant uh, pressure from the media in order to expose the, the report, I mean, that yeah. British Columbians should be concerned about that. John Horgan should answer questions today about where that report was, what it contains. And, yeah. and as I said, if there's no big issues with it, Mike, they should have been happy to release it and use it to inform the practice uh, in the devastating circumstances we've seen in long-term care. And yeah. so from my perspective, if, if there's helpful information in it, share it with British Columbians, share it with care providers, and make sure that, uh, you know, that is a transparent uh, process. And there's been lots of concerns about transparency over the last number of months, and we're going to continue to ask hard questions about those things. Well, yeah, and this seems to be part of a recurring pattern around that, especially when it comes to long-term care, because we've had instances where families are being kept in the dark about COVID numbers, death numbers in long-term care. So there's been this pattern of kind of secrecy for some reason around information that should be immediately mm-hmm. and transparently and openly disclosed to the public. And, and here, just as, like, I don't know, is this like another example well, I think the thing that, that, that is most disappointing is that, you know, there's the sense, John Horgan actually used the phrase, I was very, uh, I just, I was just so, it was so disrespectful, the fact that, you know, we can't share more information because we don't want it to cause hysteria. Well, in fact, I yeah, actually trust yeah. British Columbians. They're, they're pretty smart people. And when you give more information, it allows people to make personal decisions. And more importantly, in many cases, it helps them understand why things are necessary. Why are restrictions in place? Why do we need to have a certain behavior patterns? More information is better. Transparency is critical. And you're right. There's a significantly developing pattern of uh, the, an unwillingness to share information. Uh, and that yeah. needs to change. Thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, always happy to. Thanks, Mike. All right, welcome back. Here we go now with the surprising resignation yesterday of the Governor General, Julie Payette. She had been uh, the Canada's representative of Queen Elizabeth since 2017. She resigned yesterday in the aftermath of a devastating report exposing toxic workplace at Rideau Hall, her official residence in Ottawa. Bullying, harassment, staff forced to quit to escape the turmoil. Some of them driven to tears as they were berated and bullied. Shocking stuff. Payette announced yesterday she would resign. Her principal secretary also resigned. Let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Platt, Parliament Hill reporter for the National Post. Uh, he'd been writing for years about some of the problems associated with this particular governor general. Please welcome him. Brian, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Brian, what do we know about what was going on in that toxic workplace there? I mean, what are, are some of the details? Can you tell us about some of the details that was happening there? Like, why is she resigning? What were people complaining about? Well, we know publicly that um, uh, the first report came in CBC on this particular issue anyway. The first report at CBC came uh, in July and said that she was belittling employees, verbally abusive, had created an atmosphere that was causing people to leave. Um, there was that she, especially uh, when she would 
people were returning on travel with her, she would she would rip into them that it caused more uh, more stressful environment, and that her friend, who she had brought in as the number two at Rideau Hall, basically, who's in charge of the public service there, um, a very unusual hire for this position because she had no experience in federal government, but she was a close friend of Julie Payette. So it was just as bad. And that's the person who should normally be stick-handling these issues. And so out of that report, a third-party um, independent firm was hired to interview anybody who wanted to be interviewed and talk about the workplace. That report, um, which I'm told runs to almost 200 pages um, and had interviews with more than 100 people, was submitted to government a couple of weeks ago and is apparently so uh, explosive that the prime minister met with Julie Payette on Wednesday and said, uh, I think that you're probably going to need to resign over this. Wow. Who is the attorney general or the governor general now? How does that work? The, the, the duties of the governor general can now be done by the chief justice of the Supreme Court, which is um, very uh, clearly uh, laid out as a, that happens Anyway, you know, if the governor general is out of the country or something and, and legislation needs royal assent, the chief justice can do it. So for the short term, the chief justice can do in, uh, all of the administrative functions that the governor general would normally do to keep government moving along. Um, but especially given we're in a minority parliament situation, uh, they need to appoint a new one fairly soon. Okay, she issued a statement on the on the way out yesterday, Brian, and a number of things jumped out at me in that in that statement, and I know they did to you as well. To me, when I read the statement, it seemed kind of defiant in a way. She had one line in there that said, uh, "We all experience things differently," uh, maybe suggesting that people misinterpreted what she was saying or what she was doing in the workplace. But it also was kind of an echo of a a, a similar excuse that Justin Trudeau himself had had rolled out a, a while back. And I wonder if that, it seemed like a bit of a shot at Trudeau. Your thoughts? Uh, I, um, that line really stood out to me. People experience yeah. things differently. I find it very hard to believe that's a coincidence. That yeah. That is the exact same thing that Trudeau said when he was uh, accused of historical misconduct. Right. And um, I, you know, Julie Payette is very smart, very um, accomplished, but she is extremely headstrong and she is extremely confident in her own abilities. And when she thinks she's right and she thinks you're wrong, you're going to know about it. And I suspect in this situation, I don't know, I am, you know, filling in the gaps here, but I suspect that she thinks that she was treated unfairly, expected, yeah. treated to a different standard than maybe Trudeau has. And she decided to make sure people know about it. Yeah, I think that was her way of taking a crack at Trudeau on the way out here, for sure. Talking to Brian Platt, Parliament Hill reporter for the National Post. Brian, you've written about this particular governor general in the past, and a lot of questions and some of the controversy around her, and a lot of questions being asked right now if she should have been uh, appointed to this position in the first place, given that there should have been, there were warning signs out there, right? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, for one thing, there was an advisory committee that Stephen Harper had created, a nonpartisan one, with, with constitutional experts and, and people deeply experienced in, in um, you know, uh, governor generals and, and monarchy issues who helped vet candidates and recommend who might be suitable for the job. I mean, the governor general job is a very strange position. It's, mm-hmm. it's for the most part, a ton of ceremonial duties, a ton of honors duties. It's frankly not a job that I think I would enjoy very much, and most people wouldn't. And it, and it requires diplomacy, and it requires tact, and it requires, um, uh, you know, careful judgment. 
And what I believe happened here, that committee was disbanded by Trudeau. So for whatever reason, he decided he didn't want to use the expert committee anymore. And I think they got so enthralled with the symbolism of, of a female astronaut speaks, speaks five or six languages, accomplished in music, accomplished academically, has been to space twice. That was a great, they loved how that looked. And they did not spend enough time thinking about whether she was the, in the right position for this job. And the fact is there are red flags out there that they could have found if they went looking. Her most recent big job was running the Montreal Science Center. And I've interviewed employees there. And she caused the same trouble there that she caused at Rideau Hall. And she left early under mysterious circumstances. She caused people to senior staff to leave there. The same stuff that came out in that CBC story about verbal uh, abuse towards employees. Exact same thing happened at the Montreal Science Center. So if the government, if the Trudeau and his team had taken more time, they could have found this stuff before they appointed her. Yeah, it really, it sure seems like the warning signs were there and appeared to be ignored for, for some reason. Let me ask you about uh, what happens next. We're told that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, had a conversation on the phone this morning uh, with Queen Elizabeth uh, advising her of, of the situation. She was appointed by the Queen, right, on the advice of the Prime Minister. So in order to install a, another uh, Governor-General here, he would, Trudeau would have to, what, go to the Queen now and recommend a replacement? Yeah, I mean, the Queen appoints on the on the advice of, of the Prime Minister. So right. Trudeau, Trudeau, I mean, ideally, they will maybe spend a little bit more time uh, vetting whoever they decide they want to put into this position and making sure, not just that, you know, they don't have some you know, big scandal in their past, but that they're the right temperament for the job, that they know what they're getting themselves into, and that they want to do this job, that um, they're, they, um, they're just like a good fit for the office. And so you actually don't want them to rush this too much. At the same time, we're in a minority parliament situation. And so it, 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 you, if it's a very close election and you get into tricky matters of government formation, you want a, you need really a permanent governor general in place. So they do need, they do need to move forward on this. Okay, does she continue to get paid? What are, what how does that work? Like after governors general leave office, they continue to receive uh, money from from taxpayers. Is that correct? Yep, all former governor general doesn't matter how you leave office or when. Um, you get you. She now has a lifetime pension of one hundred and forty three thousand dollars a year, and that will probably go up a little bit over time. She also wow. gets an expense uh, expense account for not for anything for things that are related to her former job. So um, she'll probably they often hire their own secretary, maybe a little bit of office space, um, and for things like making speeches, attending ceremonies, and stuff. She can build the federal government for the rest of her life. Oh, my goodness. That's what gravy train, man. That's amazing. Let me play this here for you, Brian. This is uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister. He was asked about these, uh, this, these funding mechanisms for former governors general. Here's what, and he was asked whether this should be changed, and here's what Trudeau said. This country has uh, very clear rules and regulations and processes and procedures uh, in place uh, to follow on uh, in in these cases of uh, reporting uh, reporting expenses or indeed on annuities for governor generals. Uh, those processes will be followed, but uh, obviously uh, we're always open to having discussions on uh, changes that need to be made moving forward. Okay, well maybe there should be some changes. I mean, she's effectively she's resigned, but she was basically forced to resign. I mean, couldn't you argue that she was basically fired for cause, effectively? 
it's not, it, I mean, it's just, you can't really talk about this job as in comparison to other jobs. I mean, it's yeah. just not the same thing, right? It's, yeah. she is the representative of the queen in Canada and uh, she is, it's not the normal employment law, normal, normal employment law does not apply here. Right. And the legislation, I actually just read it this morning, just says if you, on the day you, you leave office, you're entitled to this, this pension. Um, it does not matter how you leave. All right, welcome back as we continue discussing the resignation yesterday of Governor General Julie Payette. It happened after a blistering report describing a toxic workplace at Rideau Hall, her official residence in Ottawa. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Stephen Hammond. He is an expert in consulting on, on consultant on workplace harassment, bullying, and discrimination at stephenhammond.ca. His book is The New Norm, A Manager's Guide to Improving Workplace Behavior. Very pleased to welcome him back. Stephen, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. When we hear some of the details about what was going on at Rideau Hall, we hear descriptions of people being bullied and, and humiliated and yelled at and, and people being told they were lazy and being dressed down in front of other staffers. Uh, big staff turnover as people just they can't take it anymore. They just quit. Uh, people leaving the workplace in, in tears. You know, Is this the kind of stuff, I mean, is that kind of classic office bullying or workplace harassment that, that you deal with on a, a daily basis? Like, what, what did you think when you heard this? Well, of course, it's been coming out for a while, and um, and I was I was impressed that uh, she actually resigned. Um, you know, so that there's a recognition that something had gone wrong. You know what what is being described, and we don't know all the details. Um, but what is being described, if uh, if any parts of it are true, is it's rare where that happens, where it's that toxic. <clears throat> but there's lots of workplaces where there's elements of it, or even there's sort of small things that are going on, but people are just absolutely terrified or reluctant to bring up anything and to say anything to the boss or human resources because um, they're not willing to risk losing their jobs or opportunities. Okay, sometimes there's, a, I guess people argue about whether what is harassment and bullying and what is just, you know, a, a boss being a tough, a tough manager or tough boss, because obviously a, a manager or a boss is allowed to set workplace ex- expectations, and if they're not being met, they're allowed to do something about it. So, like, what is the difference between bullying and harassment and just being, you know, an effective manager? Well, there's lots of different descriptions of it, and it's under various legislation, BC, WCB, and whatnot. And, yeah. and it's more or less anything that a person knows or ought reasonably to know would be demeaning or would be humiliating or would be degrading. And, and so it's, it's pretty clear... Um, it's, it's pretty clear sort of what it is. Because, you know, it's, it's not like science. It's not like, a, you know, like, unfortunately, like a virus in which it, either it is or it isn't. Um, there's, lots of, there's lots of stuff that is, is sort of in between all those things. And it's just, it's very easy for people to identify what's going on. But it, it, again, it, it comes down to, is someone willing to actually do anything about it? And, and yeah. there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong whatsoever. If you've got a, a boss that is firm but fair, if, yeah. if you know the expectations and the person is going to be really clear about those expectations and then when you don't live up to them where they say, look, this is where you went wrong, this is what I need you to do, and what do we need to do to get there? That is completely reasonable. And you might not be thrilled about it. As a matter of fact, you might feel as though, oh, gosh, you know, I, I, feel, I feel kind of silly. Well, you know, what are the things that you can take control of and what are the things that the boss is going over the line? If the boss is going over the line, 
then then that's a problem. But if they're just holding you to account, there's right. nothing wrong with that. And, and and for every time that a client asks me to, well, it used to be a, a live presentation or, you know, now online, for every time someone says, Stephen, we want to talk about what is harassment, but we also want to talk about what is not harassment. Right. And so that's a pattern that I get all the time where someone will, will just say the mere fact that a boss is saying, hey, you got to come to work on time or you got to do these, you know, this job where they find that to be harassment and it's not. And, and by the way, I don't mean to take away from the real issue, which is the toxic work environment that was going on right. in Rideau Hall. But, you know, you have to distinguish between the things you're saying, about, the things that are reasonable. What about, just got a couple of minutes left here, Stephen. Let's yep. say someone's listening to this right now and they're thinking, you know what? I believe that I've been the victim of this type of harassment and bullying at my job. I, I take your point about what you're saying. There's a difference between just being an effective, man, tough manager, tough, tough but fair manager, but someone who's being uh, subjected to offensive language or insults or ridicule or a boss spreading rumors about them or, or sending them threatening emails. I mean, a lot of this stuff is kind of classic. What can you briefly describe what options people have in British Columbia under the law? Like, can they can they lodge a complaint against their employer? Well, well, they can. But but the first thing you really want to do is you want to see what you can do internally, because once you you know, because I'm a lawyer and and so and once you get into very formal processes and get into complaints, which everyone has the absolute right to do. Um, then, then people start digging in their heels and whatnot. So, so the first thing you want to do is you want to actually see, are there any outlets in your own workplace? You know, can you actually talk to this person directly? It could be that you can do that, but you haven't tried. Can you, is, do you have an HR department if you're large enough? Can you go to the HR person? Can you go to other managers? Look to your policies. Look to the procedures because it'll spell it out because you're required by law to spell out what you're supposed to do. So first... Try to deal with the issues internally if you can, and then if you can't, or you realize that's that's not an option anyway, um, then certainly if it's under human rights, you can go to the Human Rights um, Commission, um, and if right. it's a WCB issue, you can call up WCB, and you can and you can just follow the legislation. You know, looking it up on the website, uh, it's very clear the um, options that people have. Okay, just on WCB, we just have a minute left here. What rights do people have under? Let's say they are found that they have been harassed, they have been bullied at work. Can they then receive compensation? We've just got 30 seconds here. It's, it's rather difficult under that legislation. Um, yeah. That Usually what they're trying to do with that legislation is try to find a remedy. So, And that's a good thing. So it could be that someone might um, intervene in the workplace to try to get a better remedy for you. And, and that's what you want to do as well. Stephen, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, welcome back. Let's update you now on a story we brought you on yesterday's show, and that is movie theaters in B.C. fighting to reopen for business. Movie theaters in the province, like most places in Canada, shut down during the COVID-19 pandemic. They believe they can operate safely, though. Limit the number of people inside, space people out in the theater, keep people safe while they watch a movie. Now let's get an update on the historic Rio Theater in Vancouver now, getting set to reopen tomorrow. Not as a movie theater, though, but as a sports bar. My guest is Corrine Lee. She is the CEO of the Rio. Corrine, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, this is a really interesting story of what you're doing there at the Rio, which is, uh, which, congratulations to you, by the way, and all your efforts to, to preserve this part of our history in Vancouver. I think it's awesome. Um, Thank you. When did you guys get shut down? When was the last time the Rio was shut down here? 
Well, we were we reopened in July and we and we stayed open successfully until November without incident and then we were very surprised on November 23rd to get shut down along with all other um social events like barbecues and weddings and whatnot. Right. So movie theater shut down and but bars are still open, so notably a, a sports bar would still be allowed to operate. So, Corrine, you got to tell me, how did you come up with this idea to turn the Rio Theater into a sports bar? It came from pure frustration. <laughs> um, you know, after several months of uh, being shut down and really trying to plead our case to the health authorities, I mean, the science is on our side. There hasn't been one COVID-related incident um, connected to any cinema worldwide. Um, and, you know, there's no talking in the cinema uh, you know, there's so many reasons why a cinema is safer than a sports bar. Um, and yeah, to look around and see all of these places busy and in fact, often looking rather crowded. Um, it just, I just got so frustrated and decided, you know, screw it. Let's just be a sports bar. Be a sports bar. Now you've already got a liquor license, right? Yeah. And that's the other thing I knew is that we have the exact same license as any of the bars around town. We have a liquor right. primary license, and we have a limited food service license. Right, so you should be able to just transition to just become a sports bar. So if you reopen as a sports bar, that means what? You'll be showing, like, a Canucks game up on the screen? Exactly. Um, uh, we'll be, you know, just showing... I mean, it's funny because we're a bunch of uh, film geeks. We don't actually really know much <laughs> about sports. <laughs> so um, we'll be playing whatever people are excited about. And I've heard there's a Canucks game that people are excited about on Saturday, as well as a <laughs> UFC fight. So, Oh, right. Okay, so you're opening tomorrow. Is that the plan? That's right. What, what time? Uh, we're opening at 3.30. And so wow. we're going to be open daily, 3.30 to 10 p.m. And, uh, but on Sunday, we're going to open a little earlier to, uh, because there's um, some football games we want to play during the day. Oh, yeah, football. Playoff football, yeah. No, this is, this is a primetime sports for sure. Um, so how are you going to keep people safe in there? You limit the number of people going in, right? Yeah, it's the same. We have the same approved safety protocols uh, that we were operating with for the last four months you know, uh, during 2020, um, which is you know, everyone is spaced out um, when they come in. They, you know, get their concession. They go straight to their seats. People don't arrive in a large group to a movie theater. They come in small groups, just like they do a bar or a restaurant, and they sit in their pods. So they're not interacting with each other. And right. because we're a 420-seat theater with only 50 seats maximum allowed, there's tons of room to spread out. Right. And do people have to You buy a ticket in advance, or how does that work? Yeah, again, you know, trying to uh, go along with all the rules, um, we need to have reserved seating. So right. we um, have put out a ticket link online um, that allows people to reserve their seats. Uh, there's, it's no, there's no charge. Um, but unfortunately, it's already sold out for our opening day. So, um, But moving forward, people should be able to go online and reserve a seat and come down and enjoy the Rio Sports Bar any day between 3.30 and 10 p.m. Okay, it's already, I think, turning into a success for you, and, and, and I congratulate you on it. Uh, let me ask you this, though. It just seems kind of, I don't know, like counterintuitive to, to think that it, it's, it's okay to go to the Rio Theater tomorrow to watch a hockey game, but you're not allowed to go there to watch a movie. Like, Does this make sense? No, I mean, that's exactly our point. You know, um, you know, people have asked me, did we do this out of protest or did we do it for a business reason? And I say both. 
uh, because I think this this action proves that the rules don't make sense. Yeah, no, the rules, they, they do not make sense. And it, it's interesting that the provincial government has basically given you guys the, the green light on this. I mean, the, the health ministry issued a statement this week saying uh, the Rio Theater appears to meet the guidelines. Yeah, they can open as a, as a sports theater. And they even congratulated you on your ingenuity in coming up with this. I know. We were just, like, gobsmacked that they would say that because it's the only reason why we have to be so clever is because the rules are so ridiculous. So, you know, we would much rather operate as a cinema, and uh, we're really hoping they reconsider. The, um, you know, the main thing we need them to change is that cinemas have been lumped in with private gatherings, and we should be treated like a business, the same as a restaurant or a bar. Um, we're not, you know, a, a backyard barbecue, you know. So yeah. um, we are very s- strictly controlled. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're, we're hoping that this, you know, we found we found the way to reopen, but we don't want to continue being a sports bar, obviously. Right, right. You want to go back to your your fundamental, you know, business model as an independent theater, movie theater. Absolutely, right. and I, I honestly think cinemas are safer than a sports bar. Nobody's talking during a film; everyone sits in well, total yeah. silence. Yeah. Well, yeah, and the, the other thing I was wondering too about, um, you know, a hockey game can last what three hours. Uh, a movie, maybe two hours. I mean, so you could have people in there for longer periods and maybe, you know, whooping it up and hooting and hollering when during a sports event. Yeah, I mean, we're going to do our best to keep the volume down and, and uh, keep everyone safe because that's obviously, you know, protest or not, we still want everyone to be safe. Right. But yeah, no, I, I agree with you that that's why we believe that cinemas are safer and we should be acknowledged. Yeah. Uh, for, you know, the research proves it. And so, you know, we've just been caught in this loophole. Um, The word event seems to be attached to us, and uh, we can't shake it. Okay, let me play this here for you, because on on yesterday's show, Karine, I had Nuria Bronfman on, and she is the executive director of the Movie Theatre Association of Canada, and she feels like I do. She's rooting you on, and she she's pleased for you that you're going to be able to reopen as a sports bar. But she points out that, like, all the other movie theatres that are shut down could not really do the same thing. They don't have a liquor license, for one thing. She thinks they should all be allowed to reopen. Here's what she said to me yesterday, Nuria Bronfman. As they are reopening businesses, it just is absurd to me that they aren't looking at our environment as we function as a business which is to run movie movies and yet are allowing you know movie theaters to open to masquerade as sports bars and by the way most most movie theaters do not have liquor licenses right so i applaud the rio corinne is amazing and she she is ingenious i mean but the fact that she had to do this is just a sad state of affairs okay what do you think of what she said there corinne I totally agree. I mean, that's why our marquee says, screw the arts, we're a sports <laughs> bar now, because we feel like the arts have been getting screwed. You know, like, uh, it's, it's obvious that our industry has been hit way harder than anywhere else, and everyone just seems to just take it as, oh, well, that's the way it is, and then tell us that we're all in this together. We're not all in this together. The arts are hurting more than anybody, and um, they, it needs to stop. Like we can't, that's, that's the other reason why I did this. I just couldn't take it anymore. It's just like enough is enough. 
Right. Okay, so you mentioned you're sold out for tomorrow, your grand reopening as, as a sports bar with uh, Vancouver Canucks on, on the big screen. Uh, you mentioned Sunday. There's a couple of big football games. Uh, there's a football game on Sunday. Uh, are you still got tickets available on Sunday? Yes, I believe uh, okay. there's still... Uh, and, and also, I have to say that they're not tickets because semantics is very important. It's reserved seating, ah. and it's free because we're not allowed to sell tickets. We're not allowed to promote our, our sporting activities um, so I have to choose my words carefully. Okay, so you can't charge for entry, but you're charging for the beer, though. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There, we're allowed to charge <laughs> for beer. Thank goodness, and grilled okay. cheese and popcorn. Good luck with it, Karine. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much.